Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Hot Springs Village, Arkansas, high atop the Highway 7 Ridge Line from TSPN, the Survival Podcast Network headquarters. Uh, we're going to have a great show today. It's almost going to be like two shows in one, like uh, two parts. The first part, I'm going to take you through where I've gone so far with AgriTrue. I'm going to tell you what I need from you to help me turn it into what I want it to become. And I'm going to explain why certain things are kind of taking a certain angle that maybe some people wouldn't quite agree with um, because of the inclusive nature that I want to create within it. And then we have a really cool show because I have a 16-year-old kid that teaches wilderness survival named Travers Oliver, founder of Backwoods Survival on YouTube and Facebook. And we're going to bring him on. And we're going to talk about teaching youth survival and wilderness skills. We're going to talk about the confidence that builds in your life. Uh, we're going to talk about the things that Travers believes that you need to carry with you when you go and what he's going to be doing next. So it's going to be a cool show. Before we do either one of those, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. And sponsor of the day number one today, Emergency Essentials. And you'll find them where? At BePrepared.com. Yep, they ripped the Boy Scouts off for the uh, domain name, as far as I'm concerned, and good for them. Because BePrepared.com is exactly what you're going to find uh, when you get there. There's all the ways you need to be prepared, specifically with long-term storage food. Uh, they are one of the best providers of long-term storage food, like Yoder's Mountain House, Providing Pantry, etc., that you'll find online with great pricing and great tools to figure out how much you really need to be storing and the tools you need to utilize it, like grinders and things like that for the whole grains. So check out Emergency Essentials at BePrepared.com. Make sure you're receiving their catalog. And check out all of their online resources. They're more than just a store. They are a store of knowledge. Next up today, Western Botanicals. That's my good friend over there, Dr. Kyle Christensen. And when I need something herbal in any way, shape, or form, I go to westernbotanicals.com, and I think you should too, and I'll tell you why. Because if it exists, if it's legal for sale, and it's an herb or something you would use to create an herbal preparation, you're going to find it there. And you'll find anything from the whole herbs you want to do your own herbal preparations to things that are put together for you. Everything you find there is either going to be organic or wild crafted. Uh, and that is really important. I think, you know, we're going to hear a little bit here about AgriTrue in a minute. You're going to understand why those distinctions uh, really kind of bug me and why I want to do away with them. But do you know right now that if you go out and you harvest ginseng out of the, out of the wilderness, pristine wilderness, you can't call it organic, but you can call it wild crafted because that's what it is. And that's what you're going to find with Western botanicals, either organic or wildly crafted herbs, uh, and everything you can possibly imagine. And if you're not sure what to do with them, call them up on the phone and they'll help you. They'll help you figure out whatever you need to know. And if you're part of the member support brigade, remember, all you have to do is make one phone call, give them a special code that's in your member support brigade area, and you will get a premium disc, uh, premium membership from them. That will give you 25% off everything you ever buy from them, ever. Uh, and that's valued at $50 a year. So uh, check that out today. Uh, last but not least, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. You do that, you get exclusive content 
available only to members. Remember, I do offer a national service discount. Those of you who have served in the military or actively are serving in the military, served as law enforcement officers or are actively serving as law enforcement officers, or those who are actively serving in the Peace Corps or had served in the Peace Corps in the past, all of you qualify for a special discount. Email me before you join, and I will give you the code. Don't email me after you join. That creates a mess. All right, with that, let's go ahead and get into the main topic of today's show. Like I said, it's really kind of two shows in one. And I want to start out with AgriTrue. And I want to tell you kind of where I've gone with it so far. I've picked up a couple domain names. I've had people asking me, is it AgriTrue, T-R-U-E, or T-R-U? Uh, and a lot of people suggesting the cutesy T-R-U. Um, it's T-R-U-E. Because it is a combination of two words, agriculture and true. So the root agra and the word true, we're not going to shorten true. Um, that word has not been used anywhere online, uh, especially as a single word. I am going to talk to an attorney about trademarking it, uh, specifically used with a capital A, a capital T as a single word. Uh, and I think that that will work. I am not going to restrict who can use it. Uh, other than if you're going to use it and say that that's what you are, you have to meet the minimum level standards. So we're not going to try to own it. We're going to try to create a community to police it, which I think is a lot better way to do things. That's a free market system. And I put together kind of an FAQ, and I'm just going to kind of read to you what I've got so far. I'm going to make this document available later today. And this is a working document. I want you to understand if something really kind of twists you the wrong way here, I want your feedback. I don't want it with anger. I want your feedback with a positive nature. So I can either explain why I've come up with this angle or admit this doesn't work. Let's change it. Um, let me read it to you, and then I want to talk to you guys a little bit about why I'm doing it this way from an angle that I think maybe most people have never considered before. But let's just start out with it. What is AgriTrue? AgriTrue is a new standard of truth and full disclosure in agriculture. AgriTrue producers pledge to maintain a minimum set of standards and maintain a publicly accessible online profile, which provides voluntary disclosure of their production methods. How are AgriTrue producers certified? AgriTrue is a voluntary program set up in a free market, libertarian manner. Individuals certify themselves to minimal standards and provide disclosure so consumers can make informed decisions. What assurances exist that providers maintain the standards they pledge to? In a free market system requiring disclosure, it is up to the consumer to make that evaluation on some levels. Additionally, the system will allow for fellow producers and consumers to endorse producers as well as report violations. Reported violations will have a 14-day period to be responded to before being made public. This prevents sabotage, folks. That's a little side note for me. Additionally, as a free market system, anyone is free to set up third-party verification services as either for or not-for-profit concerns. That's the one we're going to have to look at. And maybe if you want to be a third-party verifier, there's coursework you have to take, and maybe there's a registration fee, and that helps fund some of this stuff. Uh, but the producers themselves are never going to be charged a fee for this, and the consumer will never be charged a fee for this. Um, and on the endorsement side of things, um, with the system being endorsed, it will be similar to the community policing model made popular by eBay. So if you have like 400 people who have purchased from you that say they do what they say, and you have like 20 fellow farmers that say they do what they say, and 
10% of the people that have endorsed you have been to your facility and you know that's like an on-site endorsement, then the consumer looking at that can say that this guy's doing things the right way. If you add a third-party verification system, which comes later as the label has value and people value that and the market requests that, then you have great assurance. So the whole point of this, and I'm off script now, but the whole point of this is for the, eventually the community to police itself. Right now, if you go to eBay and you want to buy something, and you find a camera on eBay and it looks like a good deal, you, you can buy it with confidence because if the person sold to 1,400 people that gave him four stars, you know you're going to get what's, what's there. If there's uh, you know like 10 reviews on the guy and they're all crappy, you're probably going to buy from someone else. We can make this work the same way. I'll, I'll talk more about that when I, when I finish up kind of the, uh, the FAQ here. So let's go to the next one. Who can use the AgriTrue label? Is it only for commercial producers? AgriTrue is a free market system, so anyone who meets the minimum requirements and provides disclosure can use it. This includes people who sell in a farmer's market with direct-to-consumer mo direct models or in any manner where the consumer is able to identify the original producer of the food. So this is not for Walmart. So those that want to know how we're going to scale this up to Walmart, how we're going to scale this up to Kroger, it's not for them unless they make specific allowances for it. Unless you can look at your your pepper or your tomato or your slaughtered rabbit and say Farmer John in Bismarck, Arkansas on, on Bismarck Farms provided this rabbit. Unless you know the original producer, it can't be agriculture. It is limiting for a reason to encourage people to know their producers. I'm going to keep going. AgriTrue is not just for commercial producers, hobby gardeners, gardeners who participate in barter networks, or anyone engaged in the production of food, either plant or animal based, is encouraged to become certified and establish a profile. Why would a home gardener who doesn't sell their produce wish to be AgriTrue certified? So you're just a home gardener. Why would you bother to do this? Well, first we believe including the home gardener is one of the greatest strengths of AgriTrue. Unlike other trademark terms, there is no cost to be certified. It is about produ a producer's pledge to do no harm to the land or to anyone who consumes their food. That's your neighbor when you give them a tomato. You're not giving them a poison tomato, okay? Additionally, as a home gardener, when you add your profile and make the pledge to abide by the AgriTrue standards, you add your voice to our goal. Unlike other expensive and administratively prohibited certifications and labels, AgriTrue is designed to be inclusive, democratic, and meaningful for anyone who loves agriculture enough to produce food. Whether it's for themselves, their families, or their communities, we believe that all food production is meaningful and important. Uh, hopefully that one starts to drive home how the vision for this thing really is, folks. And if you have thousands and thousands and thousands of home gardeners who say, my garden is AgriTrue, what are they saying? They're saying, I value AgriTrue. And since many of them produce a lot, but not 100% of what they eat, that's the consumer market. That's when a farmer says, why should I do this? Because all these people that are home gardeners, hobby gardeners, etc., when they buy, they look for AgriTrue. They want to do business with you. Here they are. They care enough to do it in their own backyard. They care enough to buy it from you. Right? So let's go on to the next one. What type of food production qualifies for use of the AgriTrue label? Any food produced which meets a minimum required standard of the AgriTrue label. There are two sets of standards, one for the production of plant-based foods and one for the production of animal-based foods. Foods produced under the animal products such as eggs, cheese, etc. are governed under the standards for animal care. 
So if you use milk, you got to take care of your cow the right way, okay? If, you, if you're selling eggs, you got to take care of your chickens the right way. It's pretty simple. Does AgriTrue require compliance with local, state, and federal regulations? Because you know that's going to come up from people. No, government requires that compliance, so there is no need for redundancy of current laws or codes. AgriTrue is not in the law enforcement business. Law is a public domain issue and enforced by public servants, while AgriTrue is a private free market system. Simply put, legal issues are the realm of the legal system. While AgriTrue has some major concerns with current government regulations, our system is designed to provide consumers assurances and disclosure beyond what any current or planned government regulations provide. In other words, we don't need the giant expensive tracking system to know that this potato came from this farm in Idaho. If we have AgriTrue, you know where the potato came from before you bought it, not after there's a problem. Because you know the producer. Cool, huh? Next one. Why should a commercial producer become AgriTrue certified and provide pr production disclosure? So, you know, you're, you're in a business, you know, and maybe you do some things that you, you, you think that people don't really want to know about, right? So why would you do this? Well, here's your answer. First and foremost, to better serve your customers. Consumers today are seeking to be fully informed about the food they ate and the food they feed to their families. We believe that the industry is better suited to provide a solution to this than government bureaucrats. Secondly, labels like all-natural, free-range, hormone-free, and the almighty, quote, organic, unquote, have become twisted to the point of meaningless marketing in many respects. We believe that consumers want honesty and a connection with the actual producers of their food. AgriTrue provides you the ability to easily offer this service to your customers without red tape or large volumes of administrative efforts, so you can focus on farming instead of paperwork and government bureaucracy. Next one, can a certified organic producer use the AgriTrue label? Yes, anyone can if they meet minimum requirements to provide disclosure to the consumer. AgriTrue is a standalone certification. It does not imply or endorse any other certification. Why does AgriTrue have a minimal set of standards, or why aren't AgriTrue standards more strict? The primary goal of AgriTrue is to provide full disclosure to consumers, and for that matter, anyone consuming any food from any AgriTrue certified producer, including your neighbor's garden. So our primary focus on the is on the producer profile. That said, we also believe many consumers want to buy food free of genetically modified organisms, pesticides, herbicides, hormones, antibiotics, meat that has been ethically raised, and from producers who do not damage the land. The AgriTrue certification process provides that assurance with our minimum set of standards. For consumers that want to give their business to producers that meet stricter criteria, they are able to rely on the producer profile. Again, AgriTrue is a free market system. If consumers demand higher standards, the market will respond. Additionally, the current standards encourage producers who are currently using land damaging practices or dangerous chemicals to make a change. Simply put, the market doesn't believe in a, quote, all or nothing, uh, end quote, approach, and neither do we. And I'm going to really recommend an article to you guys here in just a minute that you read. Uh, what are the minimum standards for plant-based foods under the AgriTrue name? This is where I'm not done yet, folks. But we got to figure out what we're going to do here. The producer must guarantee they do not use genetically modified seeds. That's, that's an absolute to me. The producer must guarantee they do not use chemical herbicides. That's an absolute with me, folks. Uh, the producer must guarantee they do not use chemical pesticides. Another one I find is an absolute. The next one, the producer must utilize methods that improve soil quality from year to year and do not, re and do not rely solely on chemical fertilizers. I I'm trying to make an allowance here for things like when you're growing corn and it's a heavy feeder, if you use some fertilizer but you're also doing soil improvement, you're not really destroying anything. 
And I want you guys, I'm, I'm going to save that one for a bit to, to explain some things at the end. But I just want you to get that in your head, that fertilizer itself is not a toxin. It's not a poison. NPK, nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium, are the same atom no matter whether they come from horse crap or from a, a synthetic fertilizer. Okay. The problem with synthetic fertilizers is that the industry has become so reliant upon them, they do nothing to improve the soil. So if it, And I'll just read the rest of this, and maybe it'll make sense. The next one, no more than 30% of the land or space under cultivation can be dedicated to any single crop variety. So that's like saying no monocropping, but giving people a choice on how they lay their land out. So that means if you had uh, 10 acres, no, and you had 10 acres under cultivation, No more than three can be de dedicated to any single crop. So could you have three, three, and three, and then one of something else so you were growing four crops? Yes, absolutely. But see, it scales. So it works that way for the person with 100 acres. It works that way for a person with one. It encourages planting multiple varieties. And we got to figure out how to word that to say that it, you know, if you plant like 50% beans and then 50% corn in the next rotation. That's not the spirit of the regulation. So I don't know exactly how to word that, but I mean at any one time that the land is growing and you have crops out there and stuff growing, no more than 30% of the land for one um, item. And we have to talk about that one with the community before we do this. I'll explain that in a minute. Uh, the last one, at least 10% of the land under cultivation must be planted with non-food crops that provide predator habitat and or allow for the production of organic matter or soil building. In other words, at any one time on your property, at least 10% of the land must be growing things that are designed for land improvement, not just to take out. And I don't know if 10% is high enough. Maybe it isn't. I think it is. We'll, we'll, again, we'll talk about that. I'll explain that in a second. Here's where I'm going to need some help. Here's what I've got so far on the animal standards. Uh, what are the minimum standards for animal-based foods under the AgriTrue name? Animals must be treated ethically. Specific guidelines for individual species are forthcoming, but all animals must have access to fresh air, quality feed, reasonable space, fresh water, and decent living conditions. That's not very specific, and it's quite subjective, but I'll tell you what we do know. When you see 8,000 chickens piled into a truck with, with their feathers falling off, their legs broken, crapping on each other, that's not ethical condition. So I think we can come to something that will keep us from ever going there. And I think we can stay far away from there. I'll talk more about that in a second. Um, Next one, animals may not be given antibiotics for preventative purposes, only for acute conditions that warrant antibiotic treatment. Such animals um, may not be used for production of any food for 21 days after the completion of an antibiotic regime. I don't know if 21 days is right. I'm spitballing there. Actually, we need to hear maybe from somebody that's an expert in veterinary medicine. When I give an animal an antibiotic regime because it has an infection, because it actually requires antibiotics, not I just put it in their feed and give it to them every day for the 40 days that they're alive so I can slaughter them and they won't die of disease while they're standing in their own feces. But, you know, when an animal actually needs it, how long after the antibiotic regime is complete is it before there's no trace of the antibiotic left in the animal's system and the animal's probiotics are, have regained their full strength? Whatever that number is, that's what that number needs to be in there. I'm not going to tell you what that number is because I don't know. Um, the last part, at least 20% of the animal's feed must be produced on site. This can be via pastured feeding, harvesting feed for the animals, etc. In other words, I want the animals eating something that comes from where they are. So that we are, because that's going to require land improvement in of itself. That's going to require predatory habitat. That's going to create additional organic matter. Whatever you grow for your animals, they're either going to eat some portion and leave behind the rest, and that's organic matter for the land, 
Or if they eat 100% of it, they're going to produce what? Manure, and it's quality manure, and we know the source of the feed inputs. That reduces pass-through things like herbicide pass-through in the manure strains and improves the quality land. That's all I have for the animals so far. This is my belief on the animals, and this is where I'm going to need help. For each species of animals, we need a set of standards, and here's why. A set of standards for chickens is going to be different than a set of standards for rabbit. The living space for, let's say, 10 chickens needs to be greater than the living space for 10 rabbits. Rabbits do very well and seem very happy and are very well kept and very safe and kept healthy and they don't get sick in a hutch system. If you kept chickens in a hutch system, I would find that over-confinement. So chickens need a different standard than a rabbit. Ducks need a different standard than a chicken. Hogs need a different standard than a chicken or a rabbit. Okay, I'm not a farmer. As a kid, my grandmother had some chickens and some guineas. And, I, you know, I've messed with animals throughout my life, and I'm just now getting into what livestock we're going to make part of our house. But even at that point, we're talking about hobby production, we're talking about backyard production, we're not talking about commercial production where somebody has to pay the bills with this stuff. So what we need are people to reach out, this is where I need your help, to reach out into these communities and find 20 rabbit growers and get those 20 rabbit growers to tell us how, is, how do we ethically keep rabbits to get 30 or 40 chicken producers that produce chickens in, you know, using chicken tractors or paddock raising models and what have you. How do we ethically treat chickens that we're going to use for slaughter? It's probably different than we treat, treat laying hens because there's, there are different philosophies there. But we can agree on what, what's ethical. You know, what is the proper way to treat cattle? How much space do they need? What type of feed do they need? Because here's the reality. When someone says to you, this is organic beef, and I 100% guarantee that there's no GMO traces in this animal, they're full of shit, and here's why. It's impossible. We know what Monsanto's done. They've put these plants out everywhere that are cross-pollinating into our gene pool, but what we can say is when we're feeding our animals the food that's grown on our land, we know the seed source, and it's not GMO. Right? And we can also start buying our feed from other agri-true producers. So it doesn't have to be as expensive as organic feed. This is one of the things that kills poultry producers. It's not really more expensive to produce a chicken organically than, than in a, a conventional model. It really isn't. If you talk about the same number of birds per area, if, if you're not stacking 40,000 into one chicken house and having to burn their beaks off so they don't peck each other's eyes out, if we're growing 100 chickens organically and 100 chickens not organically, there's really not that much difference in what we do. But the chicken feed is three, four times more expensive because I have to buy certified organic feed, which has all of the government red tape and USDA attached to it. So here's some of the problems with, and this is what I said I would tell you today, that I thought maybe you would see as a little bit different than maybe anybody's explained it to you. Some of the problems that we have with, ag with uh, organic... One, the government owns it and maintains it. So that puts mountains of red tape, regulation, and expense on it. But even if it wasn't the government owning it, when organic was set up, it was set up to create a standard that producers were told they would meet if they wanted to be organic, period, end of story. No one really asked them, does this work for you? You know, what's real? It was a bunch of hippies and granola chewing people deciding, you know, we would never have any chemical fertilizers, man. But they didn't really understand what that meant. You know, they just knew that it was must be bad because they lumped it in with pesticides and herbicides. And, you know, we want, you know, chickens to be treated this way or that way. But did anybody reach out to the small producer, to the guy you could buy from and actually know on a first name basis and shake his hand when you took the carton of eggs out of his hand and he picked those eggs up this morning? Did anybody talk to him and say, how can we serve you? 
How can we convey a message that you're putting more care into your food that you're producing than anybody that's selling to you in Walmart? And how can we give you a tool to reach your consumer and disclose what you do? How can we set a minimum set of standards that anybody that sees that knows ethical treatment, no chemicals, right? If any kind of medication is used, it's used because of an acute condition, not thrown in the feed on a daily basis, so now I'm consuming it too. How can we do this for you and serve you and serve your customer? So we're going to need an awful lot of help here with, with from the community. I'm asking you guys to help me. And I'm not quite sure how to assemble that yet. Maybe what we need is a forum that's just for people that are working on the project initially only. But, I mean, things like, again, assembling a set of standards for the individual animals. I think if we can get that done, um, we can uh, we can go a long way. And if you get the standards to me and I can kind of refine them and clean them up and make them so they're easy to understand for both the producer and the consumer here. And so, so I could use some help with that. And anybody that's actually, the people I really need the most help from, there's people in this audience that you farm for a living or you farm for part of your living. You actually grow things and sell them. You're the person that I need the help from. And those that are doing it with animals especially, because I think that the plant stuff is a little easier to ferret out. But on, on, the, uh, on the plant side, I do want to know, what do the farmers out there, who are working to improve your land, who are making your land more fertile this year than last year. When you're growing a heavy feeder like corn, how much commercial fertilizer do you need if you're also applying manure and mulch and organic matter and growing green manure crops in between, turning that in? You know, you're growing buckwheat and you're turning it in uh, in between your two crops. You're growing a winter cover crop like a winter pea and you're, you're nitrifying your soil with a natural. When you're doing that, how much, how much additional do you need to grow something like corn and do it effectively and cost effectively where you can make a profit? Because I know, I know that ear of corn is better for me than when I get a Kroger. And I want the consumer to be able to know that too. But I also want them to be able to know that the guy down the road is doing 100% no commercial fertilizer and you've chosen to do that, but you meet the minimum standards. I think this is a way to be fair to everybody. And I've talked to a lot of producers out there that say, I can't do organic because of what I'm growing. It'll never work. I can't go to that level. And I can't, I can't afford the expense of the paperwork. I can't afford the expense of the inputs. But what I'm growing is so much better than what anybody else is going to give you on a store shelf. So I want to serve that market, but I want to maintain a set of standards. So people that are doing this for a living, help me out here. Send me an email. If you want to work on this with me, send me an email, put AgriTrue in the uh, subject line by itself, and then tell me kind of who you are and how you think you can help. And uh, we'll try to put something together with this. But I, I think that's going to be the big difference here. But there's a ton of difference here between uh, you know, like the organic thing and AgriTrue. One, free market. And, and I want to explain, there's all these people asking questions now. Well, well how, what if somebody sets up a third-party verification service and just starts good old boy in it and rubber stamping the certifications for money? Well, see, if it's in the government, what can you do about it? Nothing, right? Because the G-man with the rubber stamp has all the power. There's almost nothing you can do about it. And the bigger the operation gets, the more money is involved, and the easier the rubber stamp comes. In this model, to buy a pepper that's agritrue or buy an apple that's agritrue, you have to know its source. That's, that's, that's key. You have to know its source. Number two, because the source is known... Other people that are observing how that source is operating have the ability to provide inputs. So if some good old boy rubber stamp operation, you know, we are third party AgriTrue certification service, you know, Joe Blow certification service, starts rubber stamping them 
and the people they're rubber stamping start getting picked off by the community. I visited so-and-so's farm, and they're not doing what they say they're doing. Well, not only does so-and-so's farm go down in the pecking order, but the vertification company then becomes known for rubber stamping. So that, that free market system, both sides can't cheat. If either side starts cheating, it hurts both. So that ver verifier has to either yank his certification or all the other people that were paying him for certification, what are they going to do? They're going to leave. They're going to say, your certification doesn't mean anything. You're certifying clowns that don't belong here. See, as soon as you take the government out, and as soon as you don't dictate everything, you provide minimal standards, and then you let the system run itself, the system will police itself. Because the people involved with this, the, the people that are buying, the people that are growing, Right, The two farmers that are both growing, they don't see themselves as competitors like Coke and Pepsi. Sure, they both want your business, but they both want better food for everybody. And they know that if people start growing food this way, there'll be more food like this, and the whole market will grow for everyone. The second we take government away, 90% of the problems go away. I also think I've put together a pretty good solution thus far. I'd love your input, again, If you don't like something I've said today, I am in. The, this is a piece of clay I'm molding, not a rock I'm sculpting. So give me your input, do it positively, and I'll, I'll, I'll listen to you and I'll hear what you have to say. If you write me some hate mail, because I've already got one, I already got hate mail over the fertilizer issue. D delete, right? Delete, done. Because that's not the way we're going to do things here. All right. With that, I pretty much wrapped up the AgriTrue thing. And uh, as I said during the introduction segment, we are fortunate to have with us today a really awesome young guy, uh, Travers Oliver, who is a uh, survival instructor for Backwoods Survival. He's 16 years old. He has a great love of the outdoors and teaching other skills that can save their lives. Uh, Travers, welcome to the Survival Podcast, man. Hey, thanks for having me. Hey, you want to tell folks a little bit about yourself, how you got into doing this in the first place? I mean, you're only 16, and I've looked at your YouTube channel, and you've got just, I mean, you've got more videos out there than I do. Um, how, how did you kind of end up in this, this, this situation you're in? Uh, well, it started off about a year ago. I started getting, started getting interested in the survival and bushcraft and stuff, and uh, I, I started practicing those techniques and stuff, learning from others, reading books, and... Uh, I spent time doing classes in, in Florida for, under a, a Creek Indian guy named Jim Sawgrass who taught me a lot of what I know today. And uh, a lot of people just kind of were telling me, you know, you should teach others this. You're pretty good at it and stuff. So I decided to start putting them up on YouTube as just like a, a little thing. And then soon enough, people started watching them and it started to get more popular. So now I've got the whole YouTube thing back with survival and It's more popular today, and I'm just continually putting up videos. So that's just kind of how it started, and it's been less than a year now, so it's going pretty well. That's awesome. I mean, I keep telling people that ask me, what should I do online? How should I start something up? Just do what you freaking love, and, and you seem to be proof of that, man. So that, And I, I think kids sometimes get it a little bit quicker than adults because they haven't been programmed throughout their whole life. So I, I think it's awesome what you're doing. And, you, you know, your, your whole thing's called Backwoods Survival. Can you tell us a little bit about what your main goal is? Uh, well, the main goal for Backwoods Survival, is, like you said, was teaching others uh, skills that can save lives. That's just our number one thing. We want to be able to teach people techniques and uh, show them how to do it or whatever. If they ever put in a situation to where they need to use those techniques to survive. So other than that, we, we really want to... Uh, 
encourage the youth of this generation to do the same because uh, with this youth in this generation, I constantly continually see, like, uh, with technology getting more popular and more popular, kids, they spend less and less time outdoors learning things that they could be doing, like survival and bushcraft things like myself. And, uh, and that's, so those are two, our, our two main goals, really, is to, one, teach others that skills that can save lives, and then, two, is to encourage youth to do the same. And, I mean, you know, it seems to me like if you teach kids how to do some of this stuff, it can really encourage them to get the hell out from behind the video game console once in a while and actually get out there into the wilderness. Right. Yeah, definitely you can do that. I mean, and also the thing that, which I think is cool, is the fact that myself being a 16-year-old boy going out and doing that, showing them, because what they generally see is, like, the people on Discovery Channel, and they're all older men and, like, adult men, so they think, oh, that's such a cool thing, but I, I don't think I can do that because of my age. But uh, I'm proving to them that you can do it with your age and stuff. So, Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, a lot of these things that are on, on TV, and I mean, I have a lot of respect for these guys. You know, Les Stroud, Bear Grylls, Dave Canterbury's a personal friend. But they're marketed as these experts. You know, uh, Bear was an SAS guy. Dave was in the United States Army and, and a reptile uh, hunter for a long time. But most of these skills that we're learning, traditionally, they weren't the realm of experts. They were the realm of everybody. And every father and and mother taught their children how to exist. Um, We only have about 200 years worth of what we even would consider modern technology and 10,000 years plus of human history. So to me, these are things that, like you said, technology is surplanting and getting, you know, kind of taking the place of it. And I look at it like, when you go to school, right, they teach you how to do math by first learning, you know, your addition, multiplication, subtraction, division, basic, you know, 1 through 12. And then they teach you how to do complex problems, and then they give you a calculator. But if we just right. give you the calculator and you ever have to rely on, on your ability to do math without it, you're completely screwed. But in the situation where you can use that, so these skills are kind of the same thing. Where I'm sure you have nothing against the GPS, but it right. still might be nice to know how to, to navigate, right, without a GPS. Yeah, that, that's exactly, you've got to pinpoint exactly. It's like, what I, I was kind of in the situation before, before about a year ago, or before I started actually getting involved with the survival and bushcrafting techniques and stuff, I looked at it upon, because those were the guys that I saw. I thought you had to have training, be an expert on this type of thing to do that when you really don't. Like you said, these were things that, that, uh, our ancestors used to do, like they'd teach their kids this, and this is what they do just to survive. So, so well, you know, you're you're a young guy, and you're out there, and I guess you've had some mentors in your life to help you along with this. But I hear from people around your age, a little bit younger, all the time that are looking for resources and ways to get started. That maybe you know, they're they're in a single mom household, or that you know, they don't have an uncle or a a Creek Indian buddy to, to, to hang out with them, and they kind of feel on their own, and they don't know where to go, what to do. What would you suggest for them? Uh, what I would definitely suggest is is to do your research, number one, uh, look into these type of guys who, who you're seeing on TV and television and on YouTube and stuff, these guys that are experts, study their works and what they do, read books and stuff. And uh, number two, one of the things I'd probably say is most important is just Spend as much time as you can in the outdoors because most of these skills you learn from experience and over time and uh, you con- you will continually get better. You don't even need someone like a mentor or someone to 
teach you these things. If you have a general knowledge of it, you can continue to practice it. And just the more time in the outdoors, the better you're going to get at it. What are your thoughts on some of the basic skills that everybody should have? I mean, we all, you know, we always see these guys doing all these different things, but I think there's certain ones that even if you're not going to spend a lot of time in the woods, they're still good to know because you can end up in a situation where you need to rely on them. If you had to say maybe your top three to five skills that everybody should develop, what would you say they are? Uh, the top, uh, I'd probably say the top three would, uh, one would probably be uh, natural ways for water purification. That's uh, simply because I'm sure you know the dangers that can be found in water and stuff, and if you're ever put in a situation, you have to know how to be able to clean and uh, make sure this water is safe for you to drink. And uh, two would probably, I would probably say, something that I find is important is different hunting techniques, like sitting, setting up snares or uh, just primitive ways of catching food and being able to eat uh those things are definitely important for if you're ever in, in a situation where you needed to find food and stuff. And uh, I'd probably say just number three and maybe four, two would also be uh, making fire, primitive ways of making fire, like the bow drill, the hand drill, or also using things that you have on your personal being, like something that you can use, a magnifying glass type of making a fire. And then number four would probably be shelter, shelter building and and also how to make a natural and primitive uh, like string and line and stuff to be able to blend and put together your shelter. I completely agree with that. I think one of the overlooked skills that's out there, and I mean, I didn't even learn this myself until uh, maybe a few years ago, is how to make cordage. You kind of mentioned that. And it's something that we take for granted because, let's face it, I can go out and buy a 1,000-foot roll of paracord for a few bucks, and I mean, and I've got, I've really got like 9,000 feet of, of cordage there if I wanted to break it down, so it's easy to look at that and go, well, this is not something I really need, we have, you know, I have a, a paracord flob on my right. keychain, I, I wear it on my wrist, I know you have a, a company you recommend, that the, the paracord guy that does stuff with that, but the, the minute it's not there, it doesn't do us any good that it's, it's so freely available in the world, and I don't think we realize how much we depend on the ability to bind two things together. It just sounds so simplistic, but in certain different traps that you make, you need cordage and shelter building. So it's probably one of the most overlooked skills. Would you agree? Yes, I would definitely agree. I mean, those those smaller things that, that we don't generally look at when we're thinking about uh, survival techniques and stuff, those are the things that are going to come back to haunt you when you're actually put in the situation. And uh, definitely naturally the natural way to make cordage and stuff, that's one of the top priorities of, of prerequisites when you're going into the wood because, like you were saying, we're so dependent on those things we have, and we think it's all right. And it's like I'm wearing my paracord bracelet or whatever. I'll be all right if I need cordage because I have it here. But worst-case scenario, you might not have those types of things. So, yeah, I definitely agree. You know, um, could you talk a little bit about, like, your basic... EDC, your everyday carry stuff when you go out to practice your skills and develop your skills, the things that you always take with you when you when you leave home and, and you're going to, I mean, because I mean, one thing we, as I ask that question, one thing we need to preface, especially to young people out there, is you don't need to go out in the middle of the sawtooth wilderness of Idaho or the bitter roots of Montana to do this stuff. You can find little woodlots in your own backyard, so to speak, to do this stuff. But if you're going to go out there and practice these skills, there's certain things that you should probably have, right? Yeah, 
Right. Yeah. Definitely. Uh, the things that number one, I would I would have to say, any person going on the woods needs to have is a knife, and not necessarily just the woods, but even everyday life. I mean, uh, where I'm I'm from around here, people look at when I'm carrying a knife around, they look at it as a weapon, but it's not. It's really a tool. And uh, at worst case scenario, you need a knife. Uh, always 100%. You're going to need a knife. That's one of the things that I tend to always carry on me. Uh, two, I like to carry things for fire making. Uh, most people, most outdoor enthusiasts, like they, they look down upon it. Also, sometimes it kind of saddens me. They kind of look down upon the lighter itself because they think of it as like a cheap cheating thing. But uh, if you're if you're a survival enthusiast and you're someone who wants to be prepared for when a time comes to where you're going to be stuck in a situation and you need to make a fire, I would highly recommend that you always carry a lighter with you. But also, I also would carry a a flint striker, something that that will last me if it gets wet or something, or if I if the weather conditions harden upon my lighter or something like that. And also, like we were saying before, I like to carry cordage. Uh, I like to carry some type of paracord with me. Those type of things are are good. And um, another thing I I slip into the back of my wallet or slip in my shoe sometimes is a little signal mirror because people they often don't really think about when it comes to survival is signaling. Uh, but that's something that can really save your life. And just knowing general knowledge of how to signal people can really save your life if you're put in a situation like that. So those would be probably the main things that I carry on me on a daily basis. Yeah, I think that's that's really good advice. The one thing I would add is always, to me, it makes sense to carry some type of a container uh, and a container that you can put over flame because that way you can blow water. You know, right. uh, I like the stainless steel water bottles and uh, stainless steel canteen cup with the canteen, and it. it's probably my favorite thing. Uh, but you, you mentioned something there about fire making, and I, I want to really talk about that for a minute because I've, I've heard the same argument from people, like it's cheating or whatever. And, I mean, uh-huh. this comes in so many ways. Like I, I have a deer feeder set up, and I have this one guy on Facebook, and he's like, well, I'm a primitive hunter. I don't believe in stuff like that. I'm like, well, primitive hunters used to run a herd of animals off a cliff. You know, we're talking about staying alive here, and and it, when it comes to something like fire, that's so important because it's heat, it's light, it's signal, it's a method of energy for cooking, um, it, it's a morale booster if you're stuck out there, or even if you're out there by choice. And to me, I can go down the store and buy a five-pack of Bic lighters for $4, uh, and that's a lot of insurance. But Dave Canterbury, I know a guy that you 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 know fond of and I am as well, he's always said that one of the things in what you're carrying with you should be Sure, sure flame. And beyond just like a spark, yeah, that's great to have a ferro rod or something like that, but you should have some method on you that guarantees you flame because if you're in a wet enough environment, you don't have guaranteed flame just because you have a guaranteed spark. Right. And you yeah. have you had a product I just watched a video of yours on that really fits in with that, right? This, uh, what's it called, wet something or? A wet fire, right. That's it, yeah. Talk about that a minute. Uh, well, the, the wet fire, basically what it is, is something that uh, it can be lit and used while wet. So those types of things, is if, you're, if you can't get sure flame, like something with a lighter and you have a, a source of spark or something, the wet fire generally should always catch on fire and hold the flame for a long time. So the, the wet fire is something I would, I would really, really recommend. I wasn't actually exposed to this product until... I'd probably say a month ago or so when uh, Camping Survival, I did some stuff for them, CampingSurvival.com. But, uh, yeah, definitely the wet fire is something I like to, to keep in my, like, 
to go bag and stuff because it's just something if you're lighter or something that that you depend upon so much for surf lane doesn't work in a worst case scenario and you've got like some place where I'm from it's really humid so things are harder to to light with a spark uh, the wet fire is perfect for that and you can even burn while wet like I, I lit it once while it was on the pool like I had it lit and I put it on the swimming pool and it was still going which was I was really amazed by but yeah that's something a really great product you know, uh, there was a thing that I used to use uh, for that myself. It would burn just about anywhere. And I don't know if they, maybe they stopped making it. It's probably cancer-causing or something. But, you know, generally, lighter fluid, they would use a lot of charcoal fire. For a while, they were making a, a, a style of it that was like a gel. So that when you put it on the coals, it didn't all go down in the bottom of the thing. And I just started carrying that in a film container. And you could just yeah. take a little bit out with your knife and smear it on anything. And I mean, it would burn hot. And it would you could take it and put it underwater, and it would it would burn until you completely submerged it. Um, but I don't know if you've seen that. I don't know what the hell happened to it, but it, yeah, it seems to disappear. <laughs> it seems to disappear on me. But I, I'm a, I'm in agreement with you. Sure, flame is just um, you know because it's great. You know how to make a bow drill fire, a hand drill fire, and all. But those are like fallbacks, not the first thing that you, you would want to rely on if you actually were. And I guess another thing is if you're dealing with like a situation where like you've been dumped into a creek and you're at moderate to mild hypothermia onset, making a hand drill fire and going out and finding the stuff, putting the baseboard together, doing all that while you're freezing and you're shivering, not as easy as when you're kicked back with 15 of your buddies in a little get-together and everybody's making one. Right, yeah, exactly. It's just that's something that I, I hear about a lot is the, the cheapness and stuff, kind of the poserness of using a lighter, which in reality, if you're an actual outdoor enthusiast or a survival enthusiast, you're going to want to have that. The main thing with that is common sense. And and when you're ignoring something like such as easy as a lighter, because it's just stupid. In all honesty, it's just a stupid decision and choice that you're making on yourself because it's like, take advantage of those things that we have and the technology we have by using a lighter and stuff if you're going in the outdoors. You know, I, I won't say who because I don't want to embarrass anybody, but someone brought this up when we were at a gathering somewhere, and, and a fairly well-known person that was there in the, in the industry uh, said to him, well, how'd you get here? And the guy said, well, what do you mean how'd I get here? He goes, did you walk here? And the guy, you know, we were way out in the middle of basically a desert environment, and the guy goes, well, no, I drove here. He goes, did you drive your car here? He goes, no, you know, I'm from the other side of the country, so I flew in a plane and rented a car. He goes, well, that's not very survivalist, is it? And the guy goes, well, i got to get here somehow. And he said, well, I think I've made my point. And I think there is a point to that. We, 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 we tend to, in the, especially the primitive skills, but I think the survival preparedness industry as a whole, uh, sometimes take the wrong negative view of technology and not understand that if we were smart, we wouldn't throw away the old and we wouldn't bash the new. We would take the two and merge them together. Right. Exactly. So um, let, let's talk a little bit about some of your plans for uh, for what you're doing. What, what are we going to see next out of you? Uh, well, generally, backwood survival started off uh, with me doing tips or short instructional videos on uh, bushcrafting or primitive techniques. And uh, lately, I've, some of the guys I've been working with, we've been starting to discuss, and we want to try to move more into actual putting me in the scenario, putting me actually in a survival situation to where the point where I've, I've taught you guys like the skills and stuff and now I'm going to use them to actually keep myself alive. So that should be interesting. We're working on on uh, getting me out there and, 
and hopefully soon we will be uh, going out in in the woods. We've got one. We're going to be doing one in the Everglades because that's right around where I'm from, and uh, should be doing a survival check out there. So we're trying to move from those short instructional videos to actual survival videos, and I'm going to show how to survive in those situations. So that should be interesting. Very, very cool. And I think that maybe, you know, we watch these things on TV where they do stuff like that, and they're always going to, like, Tibet or, you know, yeah. African plains. And there's there's plenty of environments right here in America that can be very harsh and very unforgiving. And I, I said the average American is more likely to end up needing to use the skills right here at home than they are in the outback of Australia or the, the, the frozen tundra of Patagonia. Right. And what I like, go ahead. No, what we saying, go ahead. I was just saying, what I like about what you are doing and what other people are doing that are using YouTube is there's no, and there's no other word for this. There's no Hollywood bullshit thrown into it. It's uh-huh. it's real, and it's it's you know, of course, there's certain scenarios you set up so that you can demonstrate, but you're not trying to make something anything other than exactly what it is. And I think that we lose some of that sometimes. When, when major networks get involved and, you know, I, I like, for instance, Dave's stuff with Dual Survivor. I, I like what him and Cody do on TV. I love to watch the show. I never miss it. But it's not the same to me as when he was just doing his genuine, real YouTube videos that were just him. And, and I think there's a tremendous community out there. Are there, I mean, you're part of this community. Are there other people out there that you really learn a lot from or like what they're doing? Uh, yeah, uh, I get most of the, most of the things what I'll generally learn is is uh, from the, the different people on YouTube. Uh, that's something like you were saying is it's almost what I was thinking about the different networks and on the television. It's almost holding some of these guys back. It seems like to me simply because it's like you've got the, the producers and stuff, and they're saying this is what needs to be done, this is what's going to be done, or whatever, and you can do this within this part or whatever. So it's it's almost like they're holding them back to a sense with the, the thing. And like you were saying, I, I really liked it better before watching on the, the Pathfinders YouTube channel and stuff. I used to, when, probably about a year ago or so, I used to always watch that thing like on a daily basis. So, yeah, I would agree. One thing else I want you to maybe talk to folks about, especially younger folks such as yourself, when you're out there doing things like building a figure for a deadfall trap or a payout deadfall trap or a snare or something like that, you can build them, but you can't just leave them sitting out there, especially on public land and all. There's laws kind of against that. These are skills we can practice, but we can't go out there uh, harvesting you know, muskrats with it because there's laws against it. Right, yeah. Uh, that's something that's always been a struggle with me. Uh, it's because I'll, I'll generally do those things without even thinking, but I've, I've started to get better at that. I've started to uh, contact the, the local rangers and stuff around those areas and, and find out what I can do and what I can't do. And then something like you're saying with the snares and the traps, is that's something that's always more difficult because that's something you can get seriously in trouble for. So those are something those you really have to watch out for, especially younger kids and stuff with less experience. you got to be able to call the, the local rangers of that forest or wherever you are and find out what you can and can't do. I think another thing people need to think about is there's there's more leeway, let's say, on private property, but when something is a game animal and if what you're doing can impact a game animal, even if it's not intended, so 
pretty much if you own your own land and there's rats running around on there, vermin, you can you can eradicate them by any means you want to. But if you set up a deadfall that's ta- capable of taking a fur bearer like a raccoon and there's a season on that coon and regulations in your state about what kind of equipment you can use, even if you don't unintentionally catch a raccoon, you could still wind up in trouble, so you need to think about what you're doing even on private property. Right, yeah, exactly. And you got, you also got to think about some of the some of the more bigger things that could actually get stuck in those things, like some of the protected animals, endangered animals. Uh, somebody's cat. You know, if you're in a neighborhood, somebody's cat, somebody's dog, because, like... Uh, yeah, I've, I've actually had a run-in before with, with one of my neighbor's uh, cats before. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so those are things that, that folks need to think about. Um, what is what is your advice to because like I, I've talked to a few young folks that are thinking of doing not generally exactly what you're doing, but something in the preparedness, the hunting, the fishing. And I've always said, just do it. You know, you're not going to know how it's going to work out. Don't and you know? Some people are going to not like what you're doing and mock what you're doing, but it's more important that you do what what you really want and, and get the stuff out there. Uh-huh. How do you feel yeah. about that? Yeah, definitely. Just, you know, just what I, I, I say to people is just exactly what you were saying. It's just, like, stop talking about it, stop asking questions, just do it exactly. And uh, those type of things, it's like, like you were saying, people are going to make fun of you, some people aren't going to respect you, but in the end, the way you're going to generate respect from people and actually gain a crowd is ignoring what people, like ignoring some of the people who don't really agree with what you're doing and uh, just do what you want to do. And that's the only way you're really going to gain and benefit from it, I think. I think most of the people that are out there sniping at folks such as yourself and anybody else that's out there putting out quality content are generally people that are basing what they know on things like what they learned in World of Warcraft and uh, uh, Halo and, uh, you know, other armchair activities anyway. And if you're going to go into this type of thing, you've got to have somewhat of a thick skin because there's going to be some negative. But I think what I've learned in, in three years of doing this show is that the positive so outweighs the negative and it's so much more rewarding than the negative. I mean, I wouldn't really want to do anything else. Yeah, exactly. So if, if folks want to get in touch with you, follow what you're doing, what are the best ways they can kind of follow you and, and, and keep up with you? Uh, well, the number two things would be uh, Facebook and YouTube. I mean, YouTube is where uh, I put out all my videos and stuff. You go to the Backwood Survival channel itself. But uh, Facebook also, we, I post through I post YouTube videos through Facebook. And uh, we've actually got the biggest crowd on Facebook just, just because I, I keep posted on there and I'm on there like a few times every week and stuff. But we're also on Twitter and you can email us also at tobackwoodsurvival at gmail.com. But, yeah, the social networking is the number one thing. we got the YouTube, the Facebook, and the Twitter. So we're all on there. And we check it on a daily basis. So anyone who posts questions or anything or has comments or uh, suggestions, just go straight through there and we'll see it. Let me ask you another question that seems maybe just a little bit off the subject. What grade are you in as far as school? Uh, I'm, I'm in 10th grade. Well, this well, past year I was in 10th grade, so... Uh, in September, I'll be in 11th grade. Okay. So we got we got a 16-year-old kid, folks, 10th grade, and this is what he's doing, and this is what he's done. So those of you guys that keep emailing me about your ideas to do something online, um, I'm just going to point here and say, 
here's your example. Get out there and do it. So, uh, Travers, man, I, I'm really impressed with what you're doing. Um, not just the activity level, but the productivity level and the the clear indication that what you're doing, you're passionate about. And I'd like to thank you for all the great material you're putting out there. Uh, well, thank you for having me. I really enjoyed the show. It was great talking with you. Well, hey, I'll tell you what, anytime you've got something new, anything you want to talk about, anything like that at all, you just hit me with an email and I'll be happy to have you on again. All right, thanks. All right, folks, with that, this has been Jack Spierko today along with Travers Oliver helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. There's nothing I can do It's the price we pay, I guess And we follow all the rules There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way Revolution is